Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. I'm looking for Ks, because the K on this, right there, mm -hmm. and right there, it's the same thing. Make everything against the law that isn't safe if you Robert Fisher. She's almost out. Can you guys shine light? Because my light is. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. Where your foot was is where we just need your hand. Do you need me to take the camera? I do. Well, is he in there? This is True Crime Arizona, finding Robert Fisher in Arizona's Family Originals podcast. All right, let's have you start gathering everybody. Where'd Jaren go? Back in the woods, just outside Young. Gonna gather everybody up, kind of go over there. The group was getting ready to go underground into 41 Club. You tell me, Wimby. That's good. It's a cave where Robert Fisher may have been or hid inside at some point, near where his car was found. Okay, right here. You got me, Juan? Go. You want to start recording on Brianna? In episode three, you heard us back where Robert's forerunner was found after the murders and explosion, which was particularly eerie for former detective TJ Duran and Ray Keeler, who led the cave searches for Robert Fisher at the time. Ray has searched a lot of caves in the area, and because of his work, has a lot of documentation related to the case. Those include what are called registers, which are basically paper journals found inside caves where spelunkers sign their names and dates of when they visited and sometimes write a message. So these are all the people that have been in the cave since 2000, up until last year. Ray has several registers from the past two plus decades. Before we headed into the cave, he wanted to show us something. He pulled out a register that began in the year 2000. Remember, the Fisher tragedy happened in April of 2001. Ray says he found this register inside 41 Club in July of 2001. Lo and behold, there was an undated entry from somebody named Robert Fisher. This is what it said. You stopped effing people, F you, you get the trend. Make everything against the law that isn't safe, F you. Robert Fisher, key part of this puzzle, Here's the second page of that that goes in here. So this is the first page. Here's the opposing page next to it that might have been involved. We're going to fast forward to 10 years later. Just for clarification, that was written before the incident. No, this was, it might have After. been. This was found on July 4th weekend. So we don't know when that was written. Right, right. There's no date on that side. July 4th of 2001. Okay. okay. Remember earlier this season when we were comparing Robert Fisher's fingerprints from the evidence file? Well, that military card that has the fingerprints also has something else. Robert's official signature. 
and I had a picture of it on my phone. You're showing me the signature just now. It's the first time I've actually seen his writing that is verified to be his. That so, we know is so him. So I don't know, but I can look through these. So we're looking if any of these match this. We broke it down by letter as a group, looking for certain characteristics. Yeah, I'm looking for K's, because the K on this Oh, yeah, and it's a weird K. K. And the K on, on this one, 10 years later, if you find a K on this right there, mm -hmm. and right there, it's the same thing. Are there any, anything, I mean, this is obviously print, and this is cursive, but are there any squirrelies? Because he does that on the W and the F. TJ, what are your thoughts looking at the two signatures? I personally, I don't believe it's him. Yeah. Um, and if you look at your signature again, yeah. his writing, his writing is slanted to the right. Look at his name. Most of it's slanted to the right. Correct? Yeah. Yep, slanted to the right. Especially the L's of William. Right. Here, whoever wrote this is basically almost straight up. We looked at another entry from 2010 that had similar verbiage and handwriting, but was signed by a different name. Okay, so those definitely do not match his signature. We can pretty much rule out those entries being the real Robert Fisher. We think it was either somebody else with that name, which is completely possible, or somebody playing a joke, signing his name. Everyone was about to head into the cave, except TJ. He didn't feel comfortable going in, so he waited outside and watched the rest of our gear. Since Shanna and Jaren splunk often and were there to help with climbing and safety, I asked Shanna what kind of critters they usually see. Just mostly little things like the spiders are the main thing we run into in there. We've also run into a couple mice. He saw a cat in one. I only saw the paw prints in the dust. And I think it's about the most exciting we've seen in the cave. The mouth of the cave wasn't very big. We started in single file, Ray Keeler leading the pack, followed by Jaron and Shanna, then Sergio, me, and our other photographer, Juan. So this door frame you're going under used to be in better condition. But that was to keep the air out. Okay, hang on, let me get to you. So this is 41 Club. You're passing by the door right between us. Okay. See the, the handle and everything? It's very nice. Oh, wow, there was an actual door. Correct. There's rumors very that this was a speakeasy <laughs> for the 30s. That would be kind of cool. Ray, how much cooler are the caves in the summer than outside? Up here at elevation, it's about 50 to 52 degrees. It's nice. All right, summer, winter, spring, fall. So it doesn't change temperatures no matter the season? Correct. That wow. piece of info in and of itself was a clue at how realistically livable it could be inside this cave at any yeah. point in time. We kept going and eventually had to get on hands and knees to crawl through a really tight space. But once you made it through, it opened up to a huge area, big enough for several of us to fully stand. And sitting on part of the rock was a canister. It was the cave register. The front of it said, Please help protect this cave, cave register. I decided to sign it. Oh yeah, and a pen. I pulled it out to start reading names inside. Mason James. Colin Pape, Victor, Chris C. All right, I wrote Brianna Whitney, 420-22, Arizona's family news crew on Robert Fisher search. We were about 100 feet into the cave. As we headed further in, we took a moment to reflect on what we were seeing and experiencing so far. 
There's no doubt this thing was way bigger than I thought it would be. Okay. Let me get down first and I'll tell you when to come all the way down, okay? Okay. Juan, how you doing back there? Good. Okay. Did you just come in? Is that a circle? Yeah, it oh. circles around. It circles around? Yeah. Okay. And Ray said we were just at the first quarter mile of the cave. It stretched on for many more miles. The full extent of it wasn't even mapped out yet when Robert Fisher disappeared, meaning at the time, there were parts of this cave nobody knew about. Sergio asked me a question. So B, yeah. how do you feel? Do you feel like if, even if you were an avid caver or, or spelunker, could you come down here and stay for a few days? Uh, uh, yeah. You I think so? I think I could at least last two days. And that's somebody who doesn't have experience caving. I mean, the temperature's regulated, it's cool. There's room, I mean, yeah, I'm crouching right here, but there's, there's room right down there to stand. You can lay down, I mean, if you had food and water, Ray, is there water in this cave? Yep. So even it's if you didn't- a shower room. A shower room. A shower room. Yeah. What does that mean? You're crawling on your stomach in the mud and then you go underneath the drip and then you're standing up. It's that's part, a, it's part of the loop. That's a rough shower. Is it plausible Robert Fisher could have survived in this cave? For more than a week, easy. Can we go a little further? Sure. We continued on deeper into the cave. Um, Jaren, will you give him a hand? I don't want him to slip toward what Ray called a big living room a little farther in. The top of the cave is really wet. Why is that? It's like dripping wet. Right, we change humidity levels. Jaren and Shanna took the lead on the way Did down this time. Ray! Yes? Recent boot prints. Where's this boot print? Here. Wait, wasn't the cave registry just signed a couple days ago? Those were likely from the people who signed the register just days before us. Jaren and Shanna pointed out another key factor to being able to live in this cave. If I had all the time in the world to sit down here, then I'd just start a fire and boil the water. So fire, that's a key component. If you can go out and hunt, then you can make fire. Say it again? If you can go out and hunt, then you can generally make fire. And you could have a fire down here and it wouldn't cause any carbon dioxide. Not with all the openings, there's enough air flow right. through here. There is more than enough flow. You keep your fire small, you're, you're looking for heat and possibly a little light, smaller fire, less smoke. Yeah. People outside of it may not even know that you have a fire in here. In the silence, all you could hear was the dripping of water from the ceiling. It was oddly peaceful. So basically these drips are left over from the snow and rain over the last several months, and this was a very dry winter. So there could be more water in here. Yes. Once we crawled through a couple more tight spots and went over a hill, so to speak, Ray was right. This living room it opened up to was massive. I would say it felt more like a large cavern rather than a cave. Considering how small the opening was into the cave from the outside, it was crazy to me it could be this big. The whole group gathered up to debrief. Question for you though. We both disagree. You say he was a survivalist. I don't necessarily think he's a survivalist. I think he was just an outdoorsy guy that camped a lot. Fair, but my point is, I think somebody like me who is not really a, an avid camper or a survivalist or even an outdoors person who stays outdoor could survive in here for a, an extended amount of time, at least a fair amount of days. So if you put that he was at least somewhat of an outdoorsman, I feel like he has a good shot of surviving in here. Ray showed us a passageway nearby that investigators did not know about in 2001 when Robert Fisher disappeared. 
So you can tell that this passage isn't small and it, it, was, it was not on their map. And it's really quite simple to dash down in here. So if Robert Fisher was part of the puzzle and wanted to get out and heard them coming, he would just quietly go down into the cave and farther in without having any trouble. It makes you wonder how much of this cave or any others in the area still haven't been fully mapped or how many other small passages could exist that we don't know about. Um, if you go back up that way, there's that part where it kind of loops around. Better. See the spider? Oh, that's giant. Oh, I don't like spiders. It's dead. Oh, my it's spiders. dead. It's dead. Despite the spider, Sergio, Jaren, and I broke away from the group to check out a tight area before we left. I don't know about getting out this way. No. Again, that way it goes, it goes down over there. Okay. But this here connects and like, I mean, just as a shot, that's pretty cool if you want to go up that way. Thanks for guiding us, Jaren. This is probably the tightest part yet. We got it down. Good? Yep. So, let me do this then. I'm going to get all the way down there. I'm going to kind of back in, Brianna. Okay. You're going to climb right over me. Over you, okay. So we're pretty much where I'm at, right here. Okay. Okay. To get our final shots, I basically had to hover right above Sergio and climb right over his face, which was awkward and funny at the same time. Well, anything for the shot. <laughs> I'm laying in mud. <laughs> Hang on. We have to get this. Oh, this is a cool shot though. The logistics of shooting this for television, too, sometimes isn't overly glamorous. All right, so. All right, right over you. You're just going to climb right over me. Yep, I'm just going to stay perfectly still. Can you tell if the GoPro shot's good? From what I can tell, it's good, and I have. I'm surprised by how winding and long this goes back. Like you see those big rooms, you know, that's what it's called. But this goes for so long and it just meanders. I, it's crazy like that, that this is all underground. Yeah, when Ray was saying it opens up to a room, I picture a bedroom. That's the first thing that pops into right. my mind. And it's not that, but it is definitely the size of a bedroom. It was big. You can you could do almost anything in there. Totally, and these are like the hallways, but they go for so much longer than I think I even realized. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Climbing through the caves, you could definitely see how searchers could miss a crawl space or another passageway large enough for someone to hide in. And somehow trying to get back, Sergio and I got off the map. I can turn around and flip over at the same time. <laughs> do I, should I drop down, Jaren? No, that way. What about, okay. Can you guys shine light? Because my light is. Yeah. Let me know, am I okay? Hold on, hold on. I'm just worried about um, grip on my shoe. Uh -huh. Okay, no, I think I'm good. Yep, yep, we're good. Okay, where your foot was is where we just need your hand. She's almost out, but she can stand up. Oh yeah, can I stand up? Yep. Okay. And she lived happily ever after. Whew. She's out, do you need me to take the camera? I do. All of the batteries and the GoPros and headlamps and lights were starting to die. We were almost out. Sergio was the last one to climb up. 
Yeah, just be careful right there. One inch behind your head, one inch above it. Whoa! My light just go off? Yeah. And then can you guys shut your light? Your guys' lights. Am I okay to come out then? No. Okay. Grab my hand. We all safely made it out. TJ was waiting for us. Well, is he in there? Not that we could find. That was cool though. It was really cool. TJ said we were in there for about an hour and couldn't hear us at all. Safe to say, Robert Fisher is not in that cave alive right now. Could his remains be further inside? Possibly. But so far, none have been found from spelunkers who have searched much farther in than we went. Could he at one point have been in the cave? That part is still possible. Did you know who Robert Fisher was before you got this call? No idea. Working on the Robert Fisher investigation, I often get the same question. What happened with that crazy tip from Canada? Is there a chance it was him? I'm uh, an attorney from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Matthew Nathanson found himself right in the middle of it all. How did you first get involved in this case? I received a phone call from the Canadian police who put me in touch with the person who ultimately became my client. He was in police custody and basically was pretty shaken up. The police, a heavily armed SWAT team, had kicked his door in and arrested him at gunpoint. It was 2004 in White Rock, Canada, outside Vancouver. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police were acting on a tip they got that Robert Fisher was living in a house there with a girlfriend. Detective John Heinzelman explains why this was such a credible tip. I feel like the Canada tip is the one that so many people still have questions about. In 2004, we got a tip from, I think it was either Calgary or Vancouver area, and there was someone in custody and local authorities thought this person is Robert Fisher. And so, what they did is they took photographs, they interviewed him, and based on his appearance and, and just looking at him, he had several of the matching features. Robert had back surgery, so he had a, a lower back surgical scar. Um, he was missing his left upper bicuspid tooth. He had a gold tooth in its place. And um, this person had both of these features. And he had um, some other injuries to his ankles and some things where it could have been burn injuries or could have been some other things. Um, and he physically resembled Robert Fisher, height and weight and appearance. So that was by far the, uh, the most promising tip that we received. The same missing tooth as Robert really interested investigators. What are the odds? Out of 32 choices, you end up with the exact wrong, wrong one missing. That wasn't the only odd thing, though. In 2004, when this tip came in, 
Robert Fisher's longtime next-door neighbor from Scottsdale was living in Washington, and Canadian officials bring him across the border. Explain the, the role the neighbor played in this part of the investigation. It's very non-traditional. I've never heard of anything like that with an investigation. It's my understanding that it was the neighbor, former neighbor of Roberts, was living, I believe, in Seattle or a suburb of Seattle at the time. And when he was made aware that there was this arrest, he decided to um, insert himself in an investigation and see if he could help. And so he literally went to the police department, met with the officers. They put him in a room. They pretended that he was one of the inmates being brought in and had him in a room as they brought this person out. According to him, he says we exchanged eye contact and he guarantees us that person is Robert Fisher and this and he looked at me and he recognized me and we were we were locked in this gaze for 30 seconds or more. Is it normal to bring a neighbor into an investigation like that? That is highly uh, unusual to bring a neighbor to make an in-person identification. I've had several conversations with that neighbor on the phone and over text. While he doesn't want to do any more interviews about his involvement because it brings up a lot of trauma from this whole case, he is still adamant that was Robert Fisher. We all wanted it to be him, and so that sort of jades our opinion of things or our, the way we're, we critically look at something. If I want that to be the case, my mind will tell me it's going to be the case, and I think that's where he was. He was really hoping this case was going to be at least the, the fugitive portion was going to be over. And, and quite frankly, he looked like him. There's no way Robert could have altered his fingerprints. A, a person can alter their fingerprints by damaging them, by destroying them somehow, by fire, by acid, by cuts, you know, things like that, deep cuts, or by literally removing, as in a finger is amputated, things like that. The problem with that is then that becomes an identifiable fingerprint. So even if you have cut through the tips of your fingers, there still will be enough identifying areas to say this is, we can make a positive identification. And then the, again, the burned portions or these other things are just things that we can't be conclusive. But in that situation, uh, they can't be changed where all of a sudden um, a whirl becomes an arch or this, this ridge detail now changes and now it's turned into something else. That's just not something that can happen. So those prints in Canada matched the actual identity of somebody else? Yes, so that person- Like they weren't just random prints where you couldn't even connect who they were? Right, so that the person that was detained in Canada never said he was Robert Fisher. He professed his identity and the fingerprints that he has matched that person's identity. Matthew Nathanson went to work. I was convinced from the get-go that the police had the wrong person and it was my job to try to convince them uh, that that was the case. And it turned out I didn't have to do too much convincing because the FBI flew up and unequivocally said, wrong guy. And it's not every day that the FBI helps me do my job, but I was thankful for that. Uh, and then I carried on from there. I asked Matthew about the neighbor involvement in this investigation, something I've truly never heard of happening in a case other than this one. But what I can say is this, that if that occurred, that is appalling police work. That is contrary to so many different norms and procedures. And if this was a case where anybody actually got charged, that would completely taint the identification 
of that neighbor. Your client was never charged with anything, yet police and authorities take him in at gunpoint. What do you make of that? Well, I want to be fair and balanced here. The crimes that Mr. Fisher was accused of were very serious, horrendous crimes, killing his wife and family. And he was a fugitive and had been a fugitive for years and years. If the police had credible information that this person was Robert Fisher, I don't think you can fault the police from sort of going in aggressively to make sure that the person didn't escape. So my complaint is not so much uh, with the police arresting him because there was some physical similarities and they had some information, although the information turned out to be incorrect. The issue that I have is not so much with the American police. The FBI flew up and the FBI said it's not him. And it was only at that point that the Canadian police um, started, uh, I don't know the nice way to put this, uh, but coming up with crazy theories to try to avoid responsibility instead of just saying, we had the information, we thought it was the right guy, it turns out not to be, let's all go home. The Canadian police didn't want to release my client. They said, oh, well, the FBI is convinced that it's not him, but we are not sure. That's absolutely nuts because it was fingerprints that proved it wasn't him. And in fact, I had to threaten to sue the police if they didn't release my client immediately. I reached out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for an interview. I got an email response back from their media relations unit saying to contact the White Rock unit directly. The end of that email said, after this many years, it's unlikely the investigator is still there, but hopefully they can point you in the right direction. Then I received another email from a different person that said, Unfortunately, we are unable to find anyone who was involved in this incident from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as the records have since been purged. Why were records purged? That seemed odd. That sergeant then said it wasn't the White Rock unit who dealt with the case, even though their media relations team said they were. That sergeant told me to reach out to the FBI, which I did but they're no longer doing interviews on Robert Fisher since he was removed from the FBI's top 10 most wanted list early this year. That removal was solely because his case has gotten a ton of attention for over two decades. It felt like I was getting the runaround. How does nobody have record of what happened on file? Finally, another sergeant emailed me back a more detailed response explaining what happened. It's still a little confusing, but for full transparency, this is what his email said from start to finish. Hello, Brianna. In relation to Robert Fisher, this was brought to my attention last year by another news agency in Arizona, and I did some checking on it and learned that we have no record or file on this matter at White Rock Detachment. My understanding is that the FBI made a request to the RCMP to verify the identity of a man that lived in White Rock and a federal unit of the RCMP came to White Rock and dealt with this. It was not a detachment action and any assist file that the detachment may have had would have been purged years ago. We did look at our historical records at the detachment to confirm that there were no paper files on this kept in storage. You may know this already. But the RCMP has a unique composition and the federal portion of the organization, similar to the FBI, 
works mostly independently from the contract portion that provides a policing service to municipalities and provinces that do not want to establish their own municipal or provincial agencies. So in this case, it would be like the FBI came into Phoenix to deal with a matter and may have only given a heads up to Phoenix Police Department or used their facilities. Unfortunately, that leaves me with no special knowledge of this matter, and it is primarily from the media reports that I know of it. I would also assume that any federal unit would have purged their files as well, as it appears that the FBI request was actioned and concluded back in 2004. Regards, Kale. I relayed this all to Matthew Nathanson. The Canadian police told me they don't have any records left of this incident, that the part of the police that would have had it didn't have it anymore, they switched to digital and things didn't get saved. Um, because I asked them for an interview, and or, or at least just for information, and they said that they just don't have that information anymore. Is there... Funny how that works. Um, if the police had some information that might have justified what they did, you'd think that maybe they would have kept that. Um, I'm sure you cannot get an interview with the officer that I threatened to sue because he was charged with criminal conduct and booted out of the police. So he's no longer a police officer. He was their media liaison officer at the time. You said the officer was booted out for criminal conduct. A different case, a different situation than this one? Yes. How long after do you know? Uh, I think roughly 10 years, give or take. Did the way the police dealt with you, the Canadian police, on this case taint your relationship at all with them? No, I mean, I uh, did not appreciate how they handled this matter um, after they were told that it wasn't Robert Fisher. That doesn't taint my view of the police. I think the individual officer, who's no longer a police officer, handled this very poorly. Um, but uh, I don't think you can uh, sort of paint the entire Canadian police with the same brush. That would be unfair. During our investigation, we got to see pictures we had never seen. Pictures of this look-alike and had been dying to. Beyond the missing tooth and back scar similarity, did this guy look like Robert? Okay, here's the Canadian one. Oh, yes. Detective John Heinzelman pulled out the pictures of this man from the evidence file to share with us and our viewers and listeners. Here's one of the leads that we oh, got. It does look like him, too. From February, and I can actually take these out of there. So, but looking at this, you say, here's this oh, tip yeah. from Canada from February of 2004. But then when you start going through, here's his surgery scar, if you can pick that up or not. And then here's the missing tooth. Not only are we looking at this person and saying, okay, he could be. Now, in looking at him, I don't see it in the nose, and I don't see it as, as prominently as in the eyebrows are, compared to yeah, I agree. even from the newspaper where we say, he just doesn't have that that sharp feature there. Yeah. You know, but to say no, it's not him, I wouldn't be able to do that either, especially three years later. Personally, I don't think these pictures looked as close to Robert as the Mexico tip photos did. But Sergio and I commented that the Canada and Mexico pictures next to the actual picture of Robert Fisher looked like three brothers. The way this tip played out still irks Matthew Nathanson. After all, he's still getting interview requests from people like me 22 years later. Your client, what was his demeanor like, his reaction like with you when all of this happened? I mean, you're mistaken for 
one of the top fugitives in not only the United States, but it had really become a worldwide manhunt at that point. So how did he deal with all of this? Well, I'm not going to say anything specific about my client, but I can tell you it would be very easy for any of your listeners or anybody watching this piece to think if you were sitting around having your morning coffee and a bunch of police officers wearing tactical vests and carrying MP5 assault rifles kicked your front door in and started screaming at you and cuffing you and arresting you, I think it's pretty clear how any reasonable person would react to that and how they would feel. Of course, the police are obligated to aggressively pursue people that are charged with serious crimes and are fugitives from justice. But I think that has to be tempered with a recognition that some neighbor just saying, hey, I saw someone's picture on an FBI Most Wanted website, or I saw something on you know, the TV show America's Most Wanted, that that should be looked at very critically before doors start getting kicked in and innocent people get automatic weapons shoved in their faces. Even though my client was released, correctly so, you can't undo what happened to him uh, in terms of the circumstances of the arrest. There are definitely still people who think your client is Robert Fisher. What do you want to say to those people? Those people are wrong. I can't put it any more plainly than that. People can have conspiracy theories about everything under the sun. The fingerprints don't lie. And in fact, if they have any doubt, the FBI investigator that has been chasing Mr. Fisher for decades said it was absurd to believe that this was Robert Fisher. So that's the end of the story. All the pictures we reference in this podcast can be found on azfamily.com. Just search Brianna's Journal. Coming up on True Crime Arizona, Finding Robert Fisher. We're looking for a bar in Rye or a Rye bar. Are we in the right spot? Yeah, you're just south. The other bar got torn down last year. Uh, what trail did you mention that, that goes from here to like, How difficult is that to ride? It's pretty difficult. You wouldn't want to take no street bike. Yeah, you'd have to be an experienced rider to go up over there. Is it on a map? Not really. A lot of the trails out here aren't on maps. Do you think he's in Arizona? Yeah. True Crime Arizona, the podcast, is hosted by me, Brianna Whitney, and produced by Sergio Hernandez. It's a production of Arizona's Family, 3TV, CBS 5, and azfamily.com in Phoenix, Arizona. This is True Crime Arizona, Finding Robert Fisher, an Arizona's Family Originals podcast.
spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 